This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions and where we try to have compassionate conversations about challenging subjects. And my name is Stephen Bradford Long. All right. Well, first, just a few pieces of housekeeping. This show is made possible by my premium subscribers on Substack. If you don't know what Substack is, it is a wonderful platform specifically for writers and people who enjoy uh, reading excellent writing. And if you don't become a paid subscriber, then I will be forced to shear all six of my cats like sheep and then put them to work knitting little sweaters with their own fur to sell on Etsy. Do you want that future for my cats? I don't want that future for my cats. So in order to avoid this terrible fate, please do become a subscriber on Substack. You will get an extra podcast and an extra blog, an extra piece of writing every single week. Uh, my House of Heretics podcast with the former Salvation Army officer turned Christian heretic Timothy McPherson. And we talk about media. We talk about religion. We talk about current events. We talk about whatever is going on in the world. So Sacred Tension, the main show, is bi-weekly. But if you just find yourself needing to shove some of that Stephen Bradford long content into your veins every single week and you're going through withdrawal, then do please subscribe and you will get the extra show every week. Also, you will get my curiosities post every Sunday, which is a curated list of interesting things that I have discovered around the internet with some commentary. So if that is interesting to you, do please subscribe. I also have to shout out my Discord server, which is a wonderful little community. I am so proud of the community of people who have grown up around this podcast and around my writing. Incredibly thoughtful, incredibly interesting people, and most of the conversation about my work takes place on the Discord server. So do please join the Discord server. There is a link in the show notes. All right. Well, with all of that out of the way, I'm delighted to welcome David Livingston Smith and Sabrina Smith. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. <laughs> so, David, this is your second time on the show. Sabrina, this is your first time. Uh, so before we get started, just tell us some about who you are and what you do. Uh, I'm Sabrina Smith. I'm a professor at the University of New Hampshire. I teach philosophy. My area of specialization in philosophy is philosophy of science very generally, and more specifically, philosophy of biology. Amazing. David, I know you gave an introduction last time, but but uh, go ahead. Well, I, I'm also a philosopher. I teach philosophy at the University of New England in Maine. My specialty is dehumanization in relation to genocide, race, and related topics, about which I've written three books. Yeah. And for people who want to learn more about that, everyone should go listen to our episode together called Making Monsters. It's a few weeks back and it is fabulous. All right. So, Sabrina, you mm -hmm. have start. Let's start with your story of coming to the United States. Uh, so tell us about first growing up in Jamaica, that the, the culture there, and then coming to the coming to the United States and the shift of entering a racialized culture. So we moved from the UK to the United States to Maine in 2000. Um, it was just in the middle of the 
2000 uh, general election between George W. Bush and Al Gore. And it was an interesting experience, particularly as we moved to Maine. I think had we moved to probably a more cosmopolitan uh, place like uh, Boston or New York, uh, the experience of being a brand new person would have been somewhat different. So prior to moving here, obviously we were in the UK. I had been there for some time. David had been there for a much longer time. I left Jamaica as a late teenager to go to the UK. And in the UK, I think it's fair to say I discovered that this idea of race was a tangible, living, breathing thing uh, in people's lives. Now, you might say if you were a late teenager, it meant you had gone to school, you had had some history, you had some sense of the world. So what do you mean by that? Um, I mean that I was born and reared in Jamaica where the majority of the people in Jamaica are biologically clothed, as I like to put it, uh, in a particular kind of way. They tend to have a certain kind of complexion and certain other kinds of phenotypic features. Uh, I, I knew about race, of course. My mom worked in the tourist industry. She worked a lot with uh, people. Uh, she encountered a lot of people coming from the United States, from the UK, from elsewhere in the world who uh, are not racialized really, but who are racialized white people. I say they're not racialized because the sort of the model of the human, you know, it, from the vantage point of the races is sort of white people. So I knew about uh, the races. I understood the history of how people like myself got to be in Jamaica. And I understood about the relationship sort of between race and economic situatedness. So I grew up very poor. And I understood that that poverty situation of my life was a contingent fact of the history that brought my folks to Jamaica, some of my folks to Jamaica. So I, I kind of knew at a quasi-intellectual level all of that stuff. But in terms of against your skin race, I never encountered it. Mm. Everyone that I ever sort of uh, wish to elevate growing up in Jamaica pretty much looked like me. Our prime ministers, we have had some uh, lighter skinned prime ministers. Uh, the majority of them, I think, were. But we've also had lots of, you know, our parliament is populated with a lot of people who are sort of like me. There are universities similarly. So it's not the case that I belonged to an, a particular Uga Booga tribe from which I left and then I arrived uh, at the glory gates of heaven. Um, and now I see, aha, this is what human beings look like. It wasn't like that. Mm. Rather, it was sort of, this is how uh, our life, this is our life in Jamaica. This is one way of living. I moved to the UK to go to school and to better my situation so that I could better my family's situation because that's how people do it. That's how we do it. And I started to experience some weirdness. Well, the first weirdness was the immigration officer was rather surprised at my English. 
which was surprising to me. I remember sort of giving him a funny face because, you know, I came to the motherland. I came to the UK. <laughs> Jamaica belonged to the UK. And, you know, a lot of our traditions are intermingled with uh, British sentiments, British stuff. So it didn't really make sense to me. I mean, we have a Patois and we have English. Those are our languages, our Patois and English. Uh, so I don't understand. I didn't understand what he meant when he saw himself as complimenting me on my ability to speak well. Mm. So that was weird. And then I started, you know, I, I got to England and I started to live. And I would have these little bits of experiences that reminded me that I looked different than the majority of people. Because most of the time when I'm living my life, I'm not aware of what I look like. But I would have these experiences that would say, oh, okay, okay, that's what's going on. Uh, so so that was sort of, that was happening in the UK. But it, it really was not in your face bold mm. uh, the way I think race is practiced and felt in the United States. But the last episode, the most definitive episode in the UK was the episode of us, David and I, going to a talk given by the evolutionary biologist Robert Trivers. And it was at uh, University College London. It was in a big uh, lecture room. The talk ended and we are descending the stairs down. And uh, it, it was fairly crowded on the, on the stairs. David was in front of me. I was behind him, sort of holding on to each other to make sure that we don't uh, you know, get separated. And I felt this tap on my shoulder and I turned to see this smiley face, this, this lady, she was so happy. She, and she said, I love Nina Simone. And I turned <laughs> my head and I, I said to David, who is Nina Simone? Who is Nina Simone? And he in turn. Okay. For people who can't, you yeah. can't see what's happening. Uh -huh. The she is gesturing, to, to pointing to her skin on her hand. Yes. So I, I, I've sort of like ah, an epiphany. Now the, the 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 audience listening to this, they're like, oh my god. So she really is, you know, a person was a person from Uga Booga tribe because she didn't know who Nina Simone was. Well, of course I did. I knew who Nina Simone was, and I loved her music. But the context, it was so. Bizarre. Bizarre. It was so strange that I simply could not locate what was going on. And in that moment, I realized that this person was trying to reach me, was trying to say something about me being welcome, about everything being okay, about, you know, this is a, a foreign place. And I guess it's because when you survey the audience, it's fair to say that there weren't, I don't recall seeing anyone else in the audience that looked like me, but it's possible they were there. I just didn't see them. But the majority of people had, uh, you know, they, they, they looked like David. And so she was trying to tell me something about affiliation. Uh, she, she, was, she was trying to be kind. And I appreciate that. But, but that told me something about her and about our world. And that's, it, obviously, I'm telling the story because it stayed with me. Mm. Now, that's the UK. There was the other guy, though. 
contrasting with her who wanted you to go back to Africa. There was that experience. The um the oh the I think it's fair to say the rabid uh racist who spat uh spat on me uh in Charing Cross and uh I went after him chasing him down the road, you know, uh trying to get people to help me. Call the police, call the police and no one came to my assistance. Um I didn't go after him to attack him. I went after him because I wanted him to be arrested because I knew what he did was a violation of the most extraordinary order. Um, and he told me to go back to Africa. Now, in that case, the thing that hurt me more than anything else, being spat on was terrible. It really was. All I could think of was germs and nasties and I needed bleach to clean myself and all that. But the thing that really struck me was this idea that if this individual was in charge, he would wish and perhaps actually shipped me to a land that I didn't belong to, that I would be a wholly a stranger to. And that to me is, it's, it's, it's beyond. It's, it's when, when, I, when I think about that, it's, it's a kind of pain that is extraordinary, that you would send me to this place precisely because you think I belong there on the basis of nothing but some uh, uh, my your perception of me. Um, so those are the two really definitive experiences that I had in the UK. I had other kind of you know funny, um, terrible people who just ignorant people, but those two they stood out. That second story, actually, both of those stories stand out to me because both assume that there's some kind of essential racial nature, mm-hmm. and that that is what they both assumed the person who was trying to be kind by drawing Mm -hmm. and then the other person being a rabid racist it sounds to me like both assumed that there that you had kind of this racialized soul yes rooted in africa yes and and so this gets to the point that that race is more than just the color of our skin. Race is like this substrate, the, this this essentializing substrate. So I just want Indeed. to flag that and Indeed, bring yes. that to people's attention. The the uh, the phenotypic characteristics that meet people when they see you in the world they are symptomatic of the much more fundamental, the actual stuff that determines my. Uh, your nature. My nature. And it is, it's it's really because there's this assumption that the nature is a particular way, hence these characteristics. Right. Why we need to treat her a certain way. And that is the kind way if we are good progressive uh, folks, or it's the, you know, we need to ship them back or um, genocide them out of existence uh, if we are not the kind people. But really, both kinds of people, uh, in my view, they're operating with kind of the same metaphysics. They really are. Yes. I think the point here that you might add, which is very, very important, that after coming to the United States, you learn that it's not just people who are racialized as white that have these sorts of views. Right. There are people who are racialized as black who have these sorts of views. Well, those two, indeed. Thank you, David. So so what I'm sort of trying to do is to situate the audience. Here we have uh, a person born and reared in Jamaica, moved to the UK, started to become phenomenological. I guess if we were being fancy, I started to feel race. 
uh, experience race. What do they say? The, what's the term now? Um, lived experience, whose whose life was being transformed in a material way by race. Whereas in Jamaica, there was this kind of thing, race, but it really wasn't against my skin, right? Uh, it was there in the zeitgeist for sure. Colorism is in Jamaica, but there is no way in which uh, I could really point or did I have an experience back then that that felt in this sort of uh, this 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 visceral racialized kind of way. So that was the UK. I we moved to the U to the US and I started to have similar kinds of experiences. Uh, again, I remarked that in, initially that we moved to Maine. So I started to have similar kinds of experiences from racialized white people in Maine. Uh, some subtle, some not so subtle. So there was a supermarket experience with a, a racist person. I think it's fair to say I'm not terribly fond of that term. It's it's the best. It's a term we often use, but you know I'm inclined to say I had an experience with someone who didn't like me because of some ideas he had about me. And we generally say that that's a sort of because he had racist ideas about me. But I don't really know what was going on in this person's head, nor should it really matter, uh, some people say, but I actually think that there's something, it is important what's going on in his head because it tells us about their behavior. So now in the United States, I'm encountering that kind of stuff, the bad stuff, the sort of funny stuff, the stuff, the the strange kind of curiosity kind of stuff from racialized white people and a different kind of thing from racialized non-white people. So namely, usually racialized black people, African-Americans, where there was the assumption on the basis of nothing but what I looked like, even before I opened my mouth, that I belonged to their tribe, that I share certain of their interests, that I had certain of their values. And whenever a situation came about that was either foreign to me and I queried about it, I would get some funny responses. Or if I abstain from certain situations, uh, I would be, people would want to know why. People uh, would assume if I wasn't with David, that I had certain views about racialized white people, and they would sometimes say things that were problematic. And uh, sometimes I would be courageous enough to query further, you know, what that meant or stuff like that. So, so, so now I started to feel as if I don't actually have any place to go and be mm. because the folks who are supposed to be my kind by the lights of them and the world, I am a stranger to them. And the other folks who see me as obviously the other, I don't belong to them or with them. So where should I go? Who should I be? Mm. Now, of course, from the inside, it was never a question for me. I thought that both kinds of people were uh, exercising various kinds of stupidities, various kinds of arrogance, born of experiences, born of all kinds of stuff, but nonetheless, it was stupid. What I felt was I felt constantly violated. I felt as if I didn't have a place. And I stewed about it for a long time and was frankly angry about it for a long time until eventually I started to think and and and, and eventually I wrote 
uh, an article which to this day I'm still trying to get published. You know, so that article was written, uh, I want to say like 2006, 7, 8, thereabouts. Mm-hmm. I started to work mm-hmm. these ideas Revised out. maybe Revised. three times to please mm-hmm. editors. Oh, more than three times. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, a lot more than True. three times. Yeah, that's um, that's right. Being rejected from lots of journals, uh, by lots of journals. And I'm still trying to get it published. Uh, it's grown. It's expanded. It's uh, it's it's being modified in various ways. But essentially, I'm arguing there that I am a race queer individual. Uh, obviously, I'm borrowing the the notion of queerness from a queer the queer community because I think that there is some similarities there. And here, I'm wanting to show that you have to grant to me what I think you would grant to the queer individual, namely that uh, from the inside, my developmental history was fashioned and matured in Jamaica significantly. And here I find myself in this new land with these new norms. And the assumption is that on the basis of nothing at all, I should have the right kind of a developmental stuff so that I experience race in the right kind of way in the United States. Mm. I don't, I I didn't, and I don't. And you don't want um, to. And I don't want to. And I want to say that from the perspective of developmental theory, and certainly from the framework of biology, I am not a raced individual uh, by any lights. I'm not claiming that I'm not black, therefore I'm white. That's not what I'm claiming. I'm claiming that I am race queer. I don't belong to a race by the lights of what races are supposed to be. Now, of course, someone could respond in the philosophical way and say, yeah, but you you have this all twisted, Sabrina. Race is a property of groups, of populations. It's not a, a property of individual. And I would say, that might be how we want to do it when we're doing fancy philosophy. But as a matter of, quote, the lived experience, you see me as a racialized black person. Exactly. And I am objecting to that. You keep using this term that I really like, racialized white people, racialized black people, racialized as white, racialized as black. Mm-hmm. Why use that term instead of just saying someone is white or black? That's right. So it's very important for me to not reify, solidify these problematic terms uh, because I don't think that the things that the terms are supposed to refer to, they don't exist. However, I'm not a, 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 a so absent-minded from reality so as not to use the resources that we what we already have, namely that we have these categories that we use to label groups of people and individuals. I'm not absent-minded. I know that's what's going on, but I want the audience to be aware that they are indeed, that we do race. First of all, it's very important. Race is something that we do rather than being a property of individuals. And so we say of groups of people that they are white, racialized as white, although remember earlier I said the model of the human is to be white, right? It is it is what a human being ought to be, and that we have these riffraff ooga booga tribes as sort of pop. Uh, they've they, they've they've tampered with the the biological reality. They ought not to be in existence by the lights of some people, right? So I want to say, look, I have to talk to you so you understand what I'm saying, 
But do know that we racialize, you're racializing me a certain way, and you should consider yourself as racialized a certain way too, mm. if you're a white person. And and this is so interesting to me because, you know, just speaking to my own my own experience as someone who is racialized as white in the American South and who grew up in the American South, when I really started to ingest this idea that race is an illusion, race is a fiction. And and for a long time it hasn't made sense to me. Like Thomas Chatterton Williams, who's a who's a really interesting writer, he talks about how, you know, he he married this white, blonde, blue-eyed French woman and all his kids came out completely white and that was quote unquote white, racialized as white. And that was when he realized, oh, this whole thing is made up. This whole thing is stupid. And that just shattered his notions of race. And I've I've kind of struggled with things like that for years. Like, why are we acting as if the one drop rule still applies and that for people who don't know the one drop rule is quote unquote if there's one drop of black blood in someone's line then they are black so why are we living as if that is true and that that colonial lie is still real and in my own experience when i started to really ingest this idea of race abolitionism, I felt like it made me less racist because instead hmm. of so when I so when I see an individual, if race is front and center, there's an immediate barrier for me that subconscious, no matter how well intentioned I am, no matter mm -hmm. how good and well-intentioned and kind I am, there is always the thought that is a black person, that mm -hmm. is an Asian person, and it's mm -hmm. an essentializing category that that uh, says something not about the color of their skin, not about certain phenotypic markers, but about their soul. And when that was removed, suddenly it's just like, oh, that's just a person. Mm. And, and so I feel... I feel less racist. I I don't I I feel like the this may, it makes me less of a racist person when I stop reifying race. Mm -hmm. Don't know if you have any response to that. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh I I think one of the problems right so some people would say, well, can't we just kind of detoxify race? You know, can't we just use it uh, as a simple descriptor of, of a certain kind of appearance with nothing more than that. And uh, so the philosopher Michael Hardiman, for instance, advances this view. That's fine in theory, but in practice, I, I think it's pretty hopeless. And the reason for that, among other reasons, there are a number of reasons for that, is that you cannot just make a change by fiat. I mean, it's fine in a seminar room where we can say these things. Mm -hmm. But in the real world, there's this tremendous weight of history here. I mean, the race, racialization, the notion of race. And I'll remind you, Sabrina and I both think that you can't segregate racism from race. Yes. Because the function of race you know, from the beginning, to, to paraphrase Ibram X. Kendi, was to oppress. So there's this tremendous, tremendous weight of history, as Marx 
put it not about race, but it's appropriate, the uh, traditions of past generations weigh like a nightmare on the brains of the living. Mm. So as soon as you start thinking race, just, I, I don't like to say inevitably, but I'm going to say virtually inevitably, all this stuff is there in the background. That's my experience. That That is 100% my experience. And I, I remember when I started to be more exposed to the current kind of DEI environment where it really feels like race is being reified, I felt like that made me more aware and more suspicious. Mm-hmm. It made me more self-conscious. It made me more frightened and it mm. and and you know and i and i say all of this to emphasize that human brains we're just so prone to balkanization like we're so prone to in, to to in and out thinking and so when we erect this kind of essentializing barrier even out of good intentions, it, it it will inevitably divide us and it will inevitably kind of obscure the fundamental poles of identity, which are mm-hmm. individual and human, like the two most important, mm-hmm. the, the two most important poles of identity. So how is this different, though, from colorblindness? Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> I mean, I should point it out, race isn't doesn't equal color. Americans yes. <laughs> talk as though it does. Yes. And that's simply because complexion has played a, a huge part in the American construction of race because of our history. Mm-hmm. But look, my mother is Jewish. That, according to the formula, that makes me racially Jewish. That means that if I were in you know, Germany in, in 1943, let's say, I'd stand a really good chance of having been sent to Treblinka or Auschwitz. Now, it's not about how I look. My appearance is not stereotypically Jewish whatsoever. I stand six feet three. I'm shrinking. I used to be six feet four. I used to have blonde hair, okay. <laughs> right? I have blue eyes. It's it's it, none of that. But you see, that doesn't matter to that wouldn't have mattered to my racialization. And amongst white supremacists today, it doesn't matter with respect to my racialization. So the idea of colorblindness really conflates two things. The idea that one doesn't see what people look like is just silly, right? Just silly. Human beings are biologically diverse, and there are patterns of biological diversity which match uh, patterns of descent and ancestry and so on. But that's not what race is. Race is what the way I like to think of it is race is kind of a theory of diversity, a folk theory that proposes the following. There are a small number of fundamentally different kinds of people. Discreet. Discreet. Mm -hmm. Everyone on earth is a pure specimen or a mixture of one of those two things. Mm -hmm. And that's why people, you know, look different. And behave and differently. And, and behave differently. Because, of course, it doesn't stop there. As you said, they're yes. supposed to have different souls. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to be essentially different. Uh, and, of course, by any rational criterion, that's a silly folk theory, right? But it, it grips our imagination. Have you? Yes, yes, and, go on, go on. Now, now that is a, an important point to make, that it grips our imagination. Because the, the idea, when you actually slow things down and subject the thought 
colorblindness to a little bit of scrutiny, it is kind of strange because what it means is that you don't see the person. That's what it appears, I should say, that's what it appears to me, mm -hmm. but that's not what it means. Surely, if you're not visually impaired, <laughs> all else being the case, and you look at people, you see them, you see features that they have. So what it must mean is that you don't see their race. Yes. Right? Yeah. You don't see well, their race. But you can't see race. Race is a construction. It's not, yes. it's so, not available to our sensors. So you aren't see, so, so and, and when I, I think that there is the the best interpretation that I have of colorblindness is that we don't treat people's fundamental character on the basis of how they look. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Which is, which is perfect. Um, with, but it's with, a derogatory, I, I get accused of it all the time by my progressive friends. So I, I made a, I made the mistake of, so I was recently in front of a large audience of my peers and I made the mistake of using the word colorblind, colorblindness with, without immediately recognizing how fraught that term is <laughs> and the emails i got for about a week after that mm -hmm. were not fun uh but but the you know in in preparation for this interview i was just i've been thinking about how the concept of race has appeared in fiction um, so in like a lot, I'm a big fan of sci-fi and fantasy that I'm, that's my, those are my favorite genres. I, that's what I read to relax. That's my primary form of entertainment. And have you seen the film District 9 came out yes. in the mid, in, in, I think the late 2000s, early 2010s. So District 9, so for people who don't know, it, it takes place in South Africa and this ship of aliens descends and it's supposed to be this metaphor for apartheid. It, it was, and, and so the aliens are these big insectoid creatures that live in garbage heaps and <laughs> slums and they are separate from the the humans and this is supposed to be a metaphor for apartheid in South Africa the problem being here is that the aliens are literally not human yeah. and so it just reinforces the idea that even though we're trying they're they're trying to remove the effects of alien apartheid they are still aliens they are still a fundamentally different species from outer space who eat trash they're other they they are still other and radically other radically yeah. other and then I, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with the book series the stormlight archives by brandon sanderson but there's it's this whole it's this whole fantasy series about that takes place in like this this brutal slave uh, master uh, world and it and it's uh, you know about the the slaves being liberated but instead of skin color it's it's stratified on the basis of eye color so you have the bright eyes who are you know the nobility the powerful and then you have the the dark-eyed people the brown-eyed people who are the lower case um the the lower castes and only knights who have magical powers have bright have our bright eyes and as the lower, uh, as as the dark-eyed people become knights, 
their eye color changes, as if their essential nature changes, as if there is a, as, and so it's just, it's so interesting. Once I started to see this, I started to see it in fiction everywhere, how notions of race as an essentializing thing just continue to be reified. Hmm. And yeah, 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 you might find it interesting that uh, there were stories in the Middle Ages of, say, uh, Muslims converting to Christianity and their appearance changes. Yes. Of course, the intervention of Jesus, right? Yes. So Jesus, in, in that framework, it requires supernatural being to, to, to try to modify an essence. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, so there's a really interesting metaphor of comparing race to witchcraft. And this is the most interesting metaphor to me. Talk us through that. And this is a to... this is based sure. on this is based on the book by the Field Sisters. The Field Sisters, yes. It, it actually goes back further. Than okay. That, right. So the metaphor itself was introduced by Kwame Anthony Appiah in 1980. Appiah is a philosopher, and he was one of the founding fathers of of contemporary philosophy of race. And like us. He doesn't believe in race. So what Appiah's metaphor answers is a kind of argument promoted by people who call themselves social constructivists about race. So you have folks that think, well, yeah, race is bio biological and so on, but science has shown that, that that's basically a lost cause. Race, mm -hmm. Racial uh, categories aren't Don't anything have. like <laughs> right, genuine, meaningful biological categories. So the social constructivists say, okay, okay, but that doesn't mean we have to throw out race. We just have to recognize that race is a social invention, but in inventing it, it becomes real. Yeah. So race is perfectly real, according to this view, but not biological. Okay. So the, the, witch, the witchcraft metaphor is sort of a, a counter argument to this way of looking at things. And it's going like this. And the Field Sisters do something different with it. Uh, it it's, it's going like this. It's saying, look, okay, so between the 15th and the 18th century, it was widely believed that people could be witches. And many, many people were tortured and executed, predominantly women, but about a quarter of them were men. So what was a witch supposed to be? Well, it was someone who could cast spells, who had familiar spirits at their beck and call, who would fly off once a month to consort with Satan somewhere in a remote place and so on and so forth. Now, obviously, there are no such thing as witches. There are people who practice Wicca, but that's a recent invention. It has nothing to do with witches in the traditional you know, sense of the word. So, but people believed it and they, they, their, their way of life sort of endorsed and was built around this presumption of the reality of, of witches. But good Lord. And, that, and, yeah. and uh, being accused of being a witch meant that you would face the consequences of it. So it was real material aspect of people's lives. Yeah, you'd yes. get killed for it, basically. Mm -hmm. Like you could get killed for race, actually. Um, so... We surely we don't want to say that that collection of beliefs and practices brought 
witches into existence. It made it real. And certainly, if we're interested in truth and justice, as we all should be, uh, we don't want to embrace the view that in order to uh, be just to the victims of witch persecutions, we have to say that witches are real. But in the case of race, people seem to make that move. Right. If you, they, they think that if you deny the existence of race, you're somehow making it impossible to secure racial justice. I think the very opposite is true. Agreed. It would be like saying witches exist, we just shouldn't be so mean to them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's basically <laughs> saying, you know, there are these there there is this category of of people yeah. who live amongst us. We can't tell who they are. They have the ability to transform into cats and do nefarious mm -hmm. things and ride around on broomsticks and dance with the devil around a bonfire. Yeah. That's all true. We just need to be nicer to them. We shouldn't kill exactly. them. And exactly. and it's like as long as that seed of the illusion is there, there is always the threat. There is always the, the seed for that to grow into yeah. violence against witches. Sure. Yes. Yeah. As long as that is there. So yeah. how is how is race different from ethnicity? Hmm. You want to do this one? <laughs> so these are really very good questions, and I think that these are the questions that are at the heart of people's worries uh, about the sort of project that David and I are interested in in bringing to fruition. Namely, we wish to write a book about this stuff. So ethnicity, to my mind, as I understand it, as I think as it is uh, defined, is about practices, ways of life of peoples, right? So the fact that I'm from Jamaica, it means that there are certain elements of social life in Jamaica that uh, if I find myself in a faraway land and I meet a Jamaican um, and we start to talk or uh, intermingle or whatever, there are certain things that we would understand we would know about each other. We, their customs, these are practices, very old, often they're entrenched uh, and they're sometimes held so tightly to people's breasts, right? These, I think, ethnic, ethnic, uh, the ethnic aspects of our lives, I think those are the things that give us our particular kinds of humanity the ways in which we practice being human beings in our cultures, right? These are not things that are whims. These are not the fashionable trend of the, you know, of the now. They tend to be very old. Um, I don't see any problem with removing from our, our lives race as a feature of how we live our lives, how we practice living amongst each other, and maintaining and keeping all of these ethnic stuff that we value and hold dear. And I should add, the fact that these are things that are important to people, it doesn't follow that all practices of, uh, of, of um, 
ethnicity ethnicity are good are ones that we should want to endorse right there are certain practices that we should say i don't know about that one uh and more strongly we should say we should work to rid our communities for of those things right but i see no no tension at all between what race is supposed to be and these values that are embedded in in cultures that people hold dear some yeah, some so nice uh extension of your point. If you were traveling, say you were in an airport and you met a Jamaican of East Asian descent, it would be exactly the same. Yes. yes right? Yes. And yes. if you then went on to meet a Nigerian, you wouldn't have that connection at all. Exactly. So race and ethnicity come exactly. apart from each other. Exactly. Yeah. And the onlooker, let's say we have a racialized white person who sees me with this uh, Nigerian person, they would just assume that they're two of the same kind, right? Yeah. They have things in common. Well, I don't know the food. I don't know the customs. Now, it's interesting. Very often, people will go to pains to say something about the degree to which, uh, for instance, Jamaican food is connected to Ghanaian food and so on and so forth. And, it, and that's fine. It's, it's true. It's fine. But, but I think that something much more fundamental is going on there, this, this attempt to to uh, fuse a connection to say that there's an there's being an unbroken so, bond in my blood and in my custom between you know myself and people from Ghana. I'm not saying that there isn't. I'm not saying that there isn't. But I'm interested in why you would want that to be so strong. And notice, Ghanaian is an ethnic category. Yes. Jamaican food is utterly dissimilar to Ethiopian food. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No. I. This is. This is making a lot of sense to me and i think that there might be a metaphor here with what makes me so frustrated every single pride month um cuz i am gay and and pride month is is like national annoyance month for me because every pride month corporations and communities and individuals on facebook and organizations and churches they all say things like the lgbt community believe xyz and need xyz and i'm like excuse me yeah. gay people appear at random across generations in every religion in every on every continent in every country in every social strata in every class androphilic men who are attracted to men women who are attracted to women we appear at random everywhere we're like we're, we're like creepers in minecraft we just spawn we just <laughs> randomly appear and in what meaningful way do we have anything in common with each other other than the shared struggle of of trying to get rights but other than that, we literally have nothing in common. And so and and to say that we do is actually dehumanizing to say that oh, we do absolutely. is actually and, and people talk about this as if we're all on on. We're all, you know, all of the gays are on <laughs> fucking Zoom together every Friday night being presided over by Boy George and Ian McKellen. And we're like coming up with the talking points of the gay agenda. It's like. It drives me crazy. You and, should do stand up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and so every every single time, oh, it kills me 
because I don't feel like I become gay until I leave this house. Mm. Yeah. I don't, I am gay in that I am exclusively attracted to men. I have sex with men. I live with my partner. I, all of that stuff. I've been with my partner who is a man for 10 years, but I think more about my cats than I do about my orientation Hmm. when I'm at home. And then suddenly I leave this house and I go out into a world where it matters. And I will be at my job minding my own goddamn business and someone will come up to me, a stranger, someone who's gaydar pinged from across the store and they shuffle over and they're like, you know, I saw this really good show with a gay person recently. And then they tell that's me like the Nina Simone. Yes, story, that's exactly. what that's what came to mind was the, when you when you told that story. And so there it, it isn't the same experience, but it rhymes with what you were describing. Well, they're, they're both involving the sort of essentialization, Indeed, yes. right? That's yes. So I think the way that attitudes about sexual orientation work are different than way attitudes about race work, mm-hmm. but they're next door neighbors. Yes. Right. And they have certain things in common. Agreed. And yep. one of them is this homogenization, right? right, right. You stop. I take, I, I interpreted what you said about dehumanization in that way. Yes. You're not a person. You are, you're homogenized mm-hmm. with, you know, an essentialized group. Essentially you're all the same. Man. I'm a default factory default gay. It's like exactly purebred factory default. Yeah, go on. And perhaps that's a feature of human psychology. I don't know. It's a quick and dirty heuristics that we use to make inferences about large groups, large numbers of things. We do. We do it much less with, say, fire firefighters. We do indeed. Teachers or something. There's something about these biological ideas that. And and the the ideology surrounding them, and it's always involved in uh, representations of of groups that have, for a very long time, uh, been in, in these adverse power relations where one group is oppressed by another group. Good, good. And 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 I should say, you know, when I say perhaps this is a feature of our psychology, uh, I don't mean to say that it's inevitable. I mean to say that we we have the ability to engage in this kind of a heuristic thinking. It's a short path. And of course, we have our cultural systems that reinforces that. Mm. Right. So there's almost a sort of an incentive to be uh, lazy in our thinking. You have me as an individual standing in front of you. You're a trained medical doctor. You have access to my um, my uh, my blood work. You see what's going on and you say something about me in terms of what is being discerned from a population of people. Make it make sense. Yes. As they say. (laughs) As they say. (laughs) And I am not the medical professional. And I am saying to you, you do have my numbers there. Uh, perhaps you wish to ask me what has changed in the last six months or in the last year? Well, (laughs) black people are inclined to high blood pressure. 
or 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 diabetes. So yeah. we got to jump on that. You know, perhaps you would like to ask me because you know you have been my doctor for a good long time, and these numbers have never presented. So perhaps the thing to ask is what has changed, right? It's it's a real lazy thing that we do, mm. and I think, to my mind, what David and I wish to have happen will require time and deliberateness and carefulness and for for those people in the uh in the podcast sphere who are interested in being good human beings and who are doing work in the DEI sphere they might hear us saying just utter craziness because they really do want things to be better mm. and uh, you know i understand that motivation but i also want to say to them i want you to think about what you are doing yeah I want you to think about what you are doing. The DEI individual who is working so hard. Let's let's define real fast DEI diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's right. Yep, continue. And the thought here is that, you know, we need to we we need to refashion our world so that we have representations of all different kinds of people in all sectors of our societies, right? And we do that by engaging them, by uh, 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 teaching some communities about um, the effects and consequences and the ways in which they enact racial policies that are problematic or uh, homophobic policies or um, transphobic policies, et cetera, et cetera. So if we can sort of excavate those bad attitudes and practices then we might have a chance of bringing in more of the individuals, particularly those who have been disadvantaged historically into the fray so that they get to reap some of these social uh, um, benefits that we all have. And surely, you know, framed that way, who would say, I don't want to have anything to do with that? We should all want that to be the case, right? The problem is when I walk in a room with a task on my mind, say I prepare myself to go teach my class. It's the first day of semester. And I step in that room with nothing else on my mind except to talk about what this course is going to be about. And these students, they see me. The idea, I'm not saying this happens, but the idea that my students are sitting there and they are consuming me through this racial prism and all that comes with it it is happening <laughs> it breaks my heart in so many little pieces because there's nothing i can do to intervene on that right and it's not the case that these students would ever behave in a in a terrible way i mean okay okay i have had uh, situations with that were not nice uh that were uh positively hurtful but but on the whole, these students are not terrible human beings. But the fact is they have been marinating as long as they've been around in this racial soup. And we should expect that they are consuming me. They're seeing me. They're perceiving me. They're understanding me through this racial lens. Hmm. And there's nothing I can do about it. But I do think it's problematic. I, I, I feel it problematic, particularly when it comes out, when suddenly... I'm having a conversation with a student and the student is at pains to tell me about customs in a particular part of the world that has nothing to do with the part of the world that I'm from. But that part of the world has 
people who were physically uh, with phys with similar characteristics uh, as as I have. And, and I'm saying, OK, there it is. There it is. This mm -hmm. person sees me as an essentially black person belonging to that tribe. We should all want that not to be the case. It reminds me of this quote from Toni Morrison that I just pulled up. She says, the function, the very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you yes. explaining over and over again your reason for being. Somebody mm -hmm. says you have no language and you spend 20 years proving that you do. Somebody mm -hmm. says your head isn't shaped properly or you have scientists working. Uh, someone says your head isn't shaped properly, so you have scientists working on that, working on the fact that it is. Somebody says you have no art, you dredge that up. Somebody says you have no kingdoms, so you dredge that up. None of this is necessary. There will always be one more thing. There's this feeling, and, and there's this feeling that... Defensive living, I call it. Yes, and it, and it wastes your time. Mm -hmm. And I so often feel this way about my queerness, about being gay, because... You know, I, I came out of a very conservative Christian world and I went through ex, ex gay therapy and the inner so much energy, so much mental energy, my entire life went to managing the fact that I had these attractions that I felt were not a God's best for me, that that I felt were the effect of brokenness, of spiritual brokenness. And so, so much of my life went into that energy, went mm -hmm. to that, went to managing the fact that I was gay. And so to me, the point of liberation was always for my homosexuality to be as boring and, <laughs> and to be as boring and uninteresting as straight sexuality. And You've said exactly what I say all the time. <laughs> well, I'm just a, I am not a particularly exciting person. It's I the most just, boring thing uh, about me. Like, yeah, I think... I know, I know. I, I disagree. I know you are very exciting. <laughs> disagrees. But, you know, the idea that you see this thing as a thing, it's like, uh, this is so uninteresting that you're remarking on so-called my so-called race like what and and you know the thing that i haven't said is what you're talking about there and what uh tony morrison remarked on this sort of this sort of uh, uh cognitive and emotional labor that uh that people have to do in addition to their various jobs it is something that i didn't want those experiences in england and uh, and much more so in the united states for a long time I didn't actually know what was happening. Mm. Like David was for a long time, my racial translator. <laughs> I would come home from someplace and I would be telling him breathlessly about a story and telling him how I don't really understand what that person was saying. And then he would look at me and he would say, we had learned a code, so we she's she public, uh, she's pointing to her skin. to the skin on her arm. So he would yeah. give a yeah. symbol. You yeah. would give that sign, that sign language of, oh, it's yeah. about this. It's about your yeah. skin. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we would do it in public. Stuff would be going on and I'm looking at him like, what, what the hell? What the hell is this? And he just touches his arm and I'm like, okay, I get it. 
And that would sort of reset my head because mm. a lot of these experiences, I would be genuinely puzzled. Like, I don't really know what is the person talking about, mm. right? And puzzling about it. And then I realize, so, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think I'm quite good at it now. I still miss some things. But prior to that, it was just a lot of trying to figure out weird social stuff that everybody else seems to be on board with, except I wasn't. Right. Mm-hmm. Who wants to live that way? I, I don't think we should want people to live this way. Yeah. One of the, the extraordinarily toxic aspects of essentializing generally, and we could apply that to race, we could apply we could apply that to ideas about gay people too, mm-hmm. is that there is no possible evidence to refute it. Right? So it's unfalsifiable, notices, yeah. Yeah. Someone notices so you don't behave in the ways they assume black. Yeah, but you got it in you. Or if you say, well, I don't experience myself that way. Well, you're just deforming yourself. You just don't understand yourself properly. You see, it's there in the inside. In our case, I have been told to my face that David has corrupted my thinking. (laughs) I treat that as a compliment. (laughs) I mean, it would be nice if that were the case, right? Uh, I, I... I don't, I don't know what that means, but, you know, people are like, well, you know, it's you're thinking that way because you're married to a white man. Well, when, when I was at the University of Alabama giving this talk, and we had dinner afterwards, and I was talking to three uh, graduate students of color. Uh, one of them, I heard, had gone up to the professor and said, do you think his wife has worked on him? Because, you know, if, if I have... Jesus, <laughs> you know, if I'm not a racist, it must be Sabrina's influence, right? Right. Wow. You know, I, I keep as we're talking, I keep coming back to ethnicity because there, because I'm thinking about the emotional valence that I experienced with ethnicity versus race. So mm-hmm. as I, you know, as I practice some mindfulness and pay attention to the experience of Mm -hmm. the concepts of race versus ethnicity. Concept of race does not feel good to me. It, it feels awful. And I know that a lot of my colleagues on the left would say that's white fragility, maybe, but it, it feels gross and it makes me feel like I am missing something beautiful about other people and about myself. And I don't like that. Mm-hmm. Ethnicity, on the other hand, is relieving and yeah. humanizing yeah. and liberating and beautiful. And the two just have completely different emotional valences mm-hmm. for me. You know, like, like for example, I love voices and I love accents. You know, as someone, yeah. who, as someone who works in audio and someone who curates conversations as part of my living, there's something so, so beautiful and humanizing about voices and the way culture and ethnicity has shaped how we speak. That's beautiful. That's, mm-hmm. That is awesome. I fucking love that and and I love being able to curate that on my show but that that kind of that joy and expansiveness and exchange is so utterly different from the emotional experience I have when it comes to race and I think yes. that's worth pointing out yes 
Yeah. I was just saying something relevant to this in revising our book proposal. Mm -hmm. One of the really important differences is, well, race is a prison. It's a life sentence, right? It's yes. by definition unchangeable. Yes. Yeah. But ethnicities can be acquired. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if I had been adopted by Sabrina's family, I would be of Jamaican ethnicity rather than Ashkenazi Jewish ethnicity. Yes. Hmm. And, and, you know, they can be lost. They can be gained. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're very mutable. Yes. Um, whereas race... Yes. Part of the logic of race is no, you're you're stuck with it for life. It's yeah. your essence; you can't change it. Yes, yes, yes. That is that is terrible state, terrible state. So, for people who are interested in this concept of race abolition, race abolitionism, and they've gone with us this far in this conversation, do you have any advice? or practical steps or anything that people can do or practice if they have come from this conversation, if they've come this far with our conversation and they are intrigued? So one thing I would say is, first of all, it is, I think that this is hard work. I think it requires a kind of deliberate living. One needs to reflect. For me, the question is, what kind of a world do I want for others and for myself? Really, it's a question I ask myself. What, what is the experience like for an individual going through the world, believing themselves to be less than because of the structure of their lives, the structure of society? They get up, they open their door, they go out, and they are operating with this idea that they're less than. Because this is the case for, you know, if you are children born in the United States, racialized black, they're going to inherit that sensibility to protect themselves. Their parents, their family members aren't telling them that they're less than because they believe so. But I think the, the whole framework is such that they will come to recognize that they are less than. Right. Their lovely teachers in school will treat them well in a manner, in a way that will suggest to them that something is off when compared to my racialized white peers. Do we want that for children? Should we want that for children? No, we shouldn't. So I think as a practical matter, we have to actually start in our everyday lives. Right use different terms and different characteristics to identify people, mm -hmm. right? Find it, excavate it from your brain, use it. Uh, pause when you're, when, you, when you're thinking about making assumptions on the basis of what people look like or their countries of origin mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. These are little things. If you're medical practitioners, I understand that epidemiology is vital to your work, but it is only important in the context of an individual, right? So epidemiological uh, information tells you about what obtains statistically. What is the case statistically? When you have an individual patient in front of you, you have an individual patient in front of you. And you always have an individual patient in front of you. So it means that while that information might guide you to some extent, it cannot be the basis of your 
treatment, assessment, and conclusions about this person, right? So there are lots of little things that we can do. We can pause. We can slow ourselves down. We can really, um, I think, not provide demographic information. And people are going to say, I am closing the, turning the, the podcast off at this point. Because this lady, <laughs> she is crazy, crazy, crazy. Now, I don't know what the government has on us. But they surely did not get demographic information, racial information from this home. Mm -hmm. They don't know the composition of the individuals here, right? Mm -hmm. um, because there are no white people living here or any black people living mm -hmm. here. I, I have to say, I love what Christopher Hitchens always used to do when he said that if when he would fill out those forms for your race, he refuses to enter any of them until he has an option for human. Yeah, and I, I, write it too. I, I love that. Anyway, go on. So, so it's, it's it's those kinds of things that I have in mind. I want to come back when you said it's hard work, and one reason it's hard work is that the matter of think we've been so marinated mm -hmm. in it, we take it so much for granted. I mean, the initial reaction for most people when I say I I don't believe in race, it's like I'm saying the Earth is flat, right? How could anyone think that? Um, there's there's a lot of conceptual work that's necessary um so there's not a lot to read unfortunately that's accessible that's we're trying to rectify that mm -hmm. the the most of the good literature on this is academic literature and it's not user friendly for people say outside of philosophy or outside of sociology and so on but to take one example one response if you if you charge that race is a fiction people say no just look hmm. like there are people who look like you david like i say okay so let's let's take an example like oh, donald trump say well hmm. why do you say he looks like me well you've both got pinkish kind of skin pink towards orange in his case you know um blah 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 but why is that overwhelmingly significant I mean, you haven't done a comprehensive study right. of our BMI or, you know, the, the configuration of our ears or anything like that. Well, someone said, we used to do this in class. I don't, you're much younger than us. So I don't know if you're acquainted with the soul singer Barry White, yeah. the late Barry yeah. White, he, yeah. right? Yeah. So I show a picture of, yeah. you know, what was it? Oprah Winfrey, yep. Barry White, yep. and and Mitt Romney's wife. Yep. So this was during the uh, presidential election with uh, Obama and, and and Romney. And I was teaching a course, uh, and a module in the course dealt with race. And I thought I would really check to see how things would mm -hmm. go with this intuition. Yeah. So I had a picture of Barry White. He had uh, he had been dead by this time. A picture of Michelle Obama and oh, a yes. picture of That's it, yes. yes. And in the picture, um, and people can Google this, Michelle Obama um, had her hair styled in a manner that was virtually identical to Mrs. Romney. These women, they looked in terms of their uh, adornment, very, very similar. And so I have these three images, two women, one man, two racialized black people, one racialized white person. Yeah. And I asked the students, which of the two 
which two individual would they say individuals would they say uh, more similar look more similar yeah. <laughs> you know it's sort of and you know how it's going to come out it's better yes. reluctant that was I, I really was like sort of oh which two right and the majority of the class said Barry White and Mrs. Obama yeah and and, and and almost when they said that, they, they kind of saw themselves. Like, they, they were drawn to that, but they realized that it was weird. It was absurd. Because, first of all, you have two women. Yeah. Two women. <laughs> you have women wearing lipsticks. We, we, we could just start there. And yet, their intuitions went in the direction of... So the, so the, the, ans- the answer, of course... Well, there are a couple of levels to it, but one is, if we're just talking about similarity and difference, it's a truism that any two things are similar in some way and mm-hmm. different in other ways, mm-hmm. like an elephant and the planet Jupiter are similar in some ways <laughs> and different in other ways. So when people claim that racial classification is about people looking similar, it becomes obvious, obvious that only certain similarities count. That's right. And there's an historical explanation for that, right? And it's it's silly in other ways as well. In my class, I used to use a picture of the former mm-hmm. speaker, uh, John Boehner. Yes. Uh, Barack Obama and Joe Biden, they're all standing there. That's right. In, in And uh, I say to students, which one has the darker skin? And it was John Boehner. He's considerably darker than than Obama, and they don't see it. This actually, this gets to something that I've been contemplating lately, which is that seeing race actually makes you blind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, like, you know, just, you know, looking at my hand here, it's like, if I look at this hand and see white... I'm, You're crazy. <laughs> I'm actually blind because yeah. what I'm seeing is an ideology that, well, except when it's, you exactly. know, except when it's overexposed in the sunlight yes, on sir. the yes, camera yes, like yes, this. Yes, but, but like this isn't, that isn't white. Exactly. And no. so, and so in a way, race actually makes us blind to yeah. the vast People. variance of skin color. Yeah. You know, like indeed, my indeed. skin color is, is a different tone and shade from my partners and mm-hmm. and it actually make when we see race like if i look at this and i see white and if i look at sabrina and i see black and i look at david and i see white i am actually blind i am actually yeah. just seeing an ideology that's brilliant that's absolutely right don't you think it's absolutely brilliant? Yeah. absolutely well this is like my experiment with the yeah when you line the students up i didn't do it i asked them to line up according to their skin colors because you know um, you know, we could do race a different way. So let's pick our any characteristics we're interested in. We could we, we could do this categorizing using different traits that people have, height, mm. eye colors, etc. Mm. And I asked them to line up according to the color of their skin because they believed that everyone in that class was a white person and I was the Exception. Exactly. And so I asked them to line up. And I think for the first time, a lot of these these students were literally examining their hands to see, you know, their arms, their their hands. Maybe for the first time. Yeah. 
Yes, they yeah. were looking at themselves and organizing themselves according to lighter, darker. And when they were all finished, there was one student that was an outlier. The jump from the last batch to that student was quite large. And really, the natural fit would have been with me. Mm-hmm. And this person was standing there like, oh, where do I go? Where do I go? <laughs> right. And I don't know how it affected that person. They left thinking, oh, but, you know, it was a, it was an interesting experiment because they just assumed that they all looked the same. And I wanted to have them come to realize that it's not the case that you all look the same. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Well, I think that is a wonderful note to end on. The two of you have been doing a really great series on David Substack called Unmaking Race. I will add that to the show notes. There was another article that the two of you wrote, uh, a long read that I will also post Thank you. Um, as well. So everyone can check that out. Other than that, is there, where can people find you? Um, what's the, what's the name of your Substack? Do you have any websites? Where, what my my yeah. Substack is called Dehumanization Matters. And I have a website, which is perpetually out of date called, uh, davidlivingstonsmith.com perfect and his email of course oh yes of course you think people can email me at the university of new england uh not there are two universities in new england so not the one in australia the yeah. one in, in yeah. new england <laughs> um and if they if they google me they'll find lots of videos of talks that i've i've given and and so on and people should feel absolutely free to get in touch, even if they want to assert that I must be insane in having these views. Well, I'm right there with you now, apparently. I've gotten (laughs) outraged messages from people. So go on, Sabrina. I am happy to receive uh, queries, uh, interest, people are interested in my thinking and my work. Uh, My email is sabrina.smith at unh.edu. I do not have a website and I have a, I guess, de facto substack on account of writing that one for David's, but I'm really uh, not very social media inclined because I don't really, I don't want the battles. I don't want to just be in that space. So uh, email is- that yes. is that is a very good life choice. Yeah, and I also recommend their Substack on my Substack Sacred Tension. So if you go to the recommendation page on Sacred Tension, it will be listed there. So everyone can find their Substack that way. There will also be a link in the show notes. Um David and Sabrina, thank you so much. This has been delightful. Thank you. You're thank wonderful you. interviewer. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Well, that is it for this show. The music is by 117. The theme song is Wild. You can find it on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. This show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and it is made possible by my premium subscribers at at sacredtension.substack.com. And as always, stay curious, and thanks for listening.